to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, virologist, joins me to talk about Freedom Walks and the end of the pandemic. Cardiologist Dr. John Weisler talks about why you still don't want to get COVID. How has online learning affected post-secondary students? Jennifer Flanagan, CEO of Actual Canada, joins the pod to talk about the impact school disruptions have had on our kids. And why is it important for men to brush their teeth twice a day? I'll tell you. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Well, we have vaccines, masks, distancing, COVID pills, and a recent surge of Omicron that just may have provided enough population immunity to make this pandemic and endemic. But should we be concerned about the Omicron variant found in France? Here to help answer some of these questions and also some of the confusion, especially between the East and the West coasts of this country, is none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. He's an assistant professor in medical microbiology and infectious diseases at the University of Manitoba, also Canada Research Chair in the Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging Viruses. Good evening, Dr. Kendra Chuck, how are you? You know, I, I love the fact that we get to talk about non-controversial subjects like whether uh, whether <laughs> SARS-CoV-2 has become endemic and whether we're we're at the end of the pandemic. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a wild ride. <laughs> it, it has been a wild ride. I'm, I'm sure you have been quite busy as well. And and people, I think, are generally confused. <sighs> yeah, you know, it, it, it's a difficult time, right? And, and I think part of this is. Um, you know, if we think about this historically, and, and listen, I, I'm not a, a history major. I'm, you know, I, I'm just a, you know, a lowly virologist slash biochemist. But if we think about pandemics, I mean, really, 1918, 1957, 1968 are kind of the, the three flu pandemics where we have multi millions of people that, that have died or, or over, you know, over or around a million people globally that die. 2009, definitely very different. Um and I think obviously HIV and TB count in there as well, but we've seen a, a long-term accumulation of, of fatalities. So what we're experiencing right now with COVID is very different from what many of us are used to because of the sheer you know, enormity of the situation. And I think part of this is now saying, well, what is the blueprint for how this is supposed to look at the end? And is it going to be the same across the globe? When is it going to be over for everybody versus just us? And frankly, we we don't know. And and I hope more people will come forward to say, listen, we're we're trying to figure this out, but we can't estimate what this is going to look like. No, no, we certainly cannot. And an endemic phase of viral infections means it's not causing the, the deaths and hospitalizations of the pandemic phase. Do we have enough immunity in the population globally, I guess, so that COVID is kept down to low levels? Uh, do, do you want the, uh, the bad answer? <laughs> the, the bad answer is, <laughs> is no. I, I, I don't think we're there yeah. yet. And part of this is, is looking at this from the auspice of saying, okay, currently in our, if, just in Canada, if we were to basically say across all provinces, we're going to remove all mitigations. So, and that includes you know, non-pharmaceutical interventions, masking, distancing, all of those things. Um, what would we expect to see in terms of hospitalizations and healthcare stress and obviously workplace stress from, from uh, people that, that had to take sick leaves? We're not at that stage yet because we know 
that certainly in different provinces, Saskatchewan, a good example. Now we're still on, on the cusp of things here in Manitoba. Cases are still spiking in many areas. So we're, we're not there yet. And that's the issue with talking about this as being endemic is, yes, the virus very likely is going to be endemic um, by, based on everything we understand. But we can't use that term at this point um, in the sense that it tells us we are already at the end because we are not at the end yet. And that's a big issue. We're, we're maybe moving in that direction, but let's also be certain uh, of what we are dealing with before we assume anything and, uh, you know, and start to pull back the, uh, the safety brakes and find ourselves in trouble again. Right. I had a patient this week who was tested positive. He had an RT-PCR in December um, and he was asymptomatic at that time. And mm-hmm. he had another PCR done this week, which was positive, but he was asymptomatic until two days later when he became symptomatic and then did an at-home antigen test. And that was positive as well. And his family members that he was living with were also positive and sick. So we have viewed him as positive <laughs> again, as getting Omicron twice, potentially, you know, well, probably. And that's, and therein lies the issue with this idea of where we are in regards to, to immunity in the population, right? Is that, listen, when, when we were dealing with alpha and, and, and frankly, to a certain extent, delta, um, we, we had a comfortability in saying people likely have good immunity against these particular variants. We're not seeing a lot of reinfections. Omicron changed that. And I think part of it is appreciating that we've got to be as fluid as the virus is. Um, and when we kind of paint ourselves in this corner of saying, okay, enough's enough, we now have to just kind of move on with things. The virus really doesn't care. Um, it is going to continue to move and change and be very fluid because it still has a lot of oxygen and a lot of room to burn in many areas of, of the globe. So if we don't match that, um, you know, we're, we're not at a point where we know what long-term immunity against Omicron looks like because Omicron has only been around for a couple of months. So let's, again, not assume that we are going to see, you know, a small amount of reinfections and therefore the likelihood is we will have control. Uh, let's, let's get through this phase first. Let's get cases under control Make sure that we've got healthcare capacity and then figure out, okay, how can we slowly roll back mitigations and, and, uh, and see whether or not uh, that reintroduces any sort of spikes in cases. Now, they've rolled back mitigation in places like British Columbia, for example, um, which a lot of people feel might be too soon. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, again, I mean, I'm in I'm in Manitoba, right? So, I, listen, I, I have a, a high amount of bias because of the situation we're currently in with healthcare, right? So, listen, we're you know, hopefully we've actually hit a peak here, um, and, and certainly I, I think that there's some you know some actual real hope that we have hit that. The problem is we know that hospitalizations will continue in the background until cases continue to uh, to descend for for a while. So, to me, I guess I look at this and say, okay, we're not at that stage. Um, BC is going to be a question mark, right? So are they going to be able to pull this off? But also, if they do it, if they're able to open this up and they're able to keep control of the situation, is it because of Omicron? Is it because of Omicron plus different variables in the population? What is it? And that's where, again, we get into this gray area of saying, we can't just assume looking at even another population in Canada, that that means necessarily what we can do 
because we have to appreciate the, the variables that, that come into effect in different areas. That's absolutely correct. And I often say that, well, a couple of things, you know, politicians and public health officials have been educating people for 22 months now. And, you know, it really is up to the person to decide what mitigation strategies they are comfortable doing. Uh, You know, if they want to be really where it's, if they want to protect themselves more than what the public health officials are recommending, by all means, go for that. I, I happen to err on that side. Um, and, and often as well, I say, I think people don't understand COVID and the rules and regulations around it, isolation, quarantine, retesting again, which was my example earlier um, with Delta, yeah. that gentleman would not have had to retest for 90 days. But I don't think that's the case with Omicron. That's not what I'm seeing anyway with my patients. So I, I people get are getting so upset about all of this, but we know what helps to mitigate uh you know, contracting the virus, people can go for it, you know, but nobody understands COVID fully until it happens to them, which you don't want it to happen to you (laughs) is my thing. I don't care if Omicron is less virulent. I still don't want it. No. And and listen, I I am so fortunate because I I, I get to talk regularly to some of the smartest minds across the country. Uh, You know, and and certainly one of the people I talk to a lot is, is Dr. Isaac Bogosh. And we've talked a lot about this idea of communication, same thing with, with Dr. Angie Rasmussen. And we've talked about this idea of, listen, we've got to be very transparent with, with the public when we talk about these things and the unknowns. Um, because the unfortunate situation is we still do not understand a lot about this virus, let alone Omicron. So we, we have to try and, and be very upfront in, in our messaging and also very much of the, of the, the side from saying, listen, we've got to be fluid. Um, if things need to change, they need to change rapidly. And here are the reasons why. It is not because we didn't uh, appreciate what might happen. It's because we need to match the situation that's at hand. Welcome back. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is my guest. He studies emerging viruses. Uh, a couple of text messages for you, Dr. Kinderchuk. Dear Dr. Kinderchuk, there are some medical people who say if vaccinated too frequently, certain immune cells may stop responding to vaccines. Others say too many vaccines destroy your natural immunity. What are your thoughts on this with respect to ongoing boosters? Yeah, I, I, so I don't agree. And I guess the, the reason that I would say that is if we look at something like influenza, when we get an annual flu shot, um, we, we do see continual, uh, continual boosting of our immune system relative to, to that virus, right? So when we think about this, you know, part of it is saying, okay, well, we, we don't want to continue to you know, over-exasperate our immune system. But at the same time, we're not, it's not like you're giving yourself, um, you know, say, let's say an antibiotic or, or a specific drug. You are basically presenting your immune cells with a small portion of virus that reminds the immune system what it's looking for. So uh, this whole idea about the you know, over-exasperation immunity, I, I haven't seen enough information to say that this is a, a cause for concern. Like, um, but people are very willing to take um, ivermectin and hydrochloric, hydrochloroquine. <laughs> I can't even say hydroxychloroquine. What's wrong with me tonight? Anyway, um, and whatever else. Exactly. And hey, Maureen, heard you say that you don't want to get Omicron. Shouldn't we just let this rip and build up herd immunity as soon as possible? Dr. Kendrick, what do you think? Okay, 
two, two things. One, we're assuming that we're going to get enough coverage in, in the population with Omicron that we're going to get a herd immunity. And the thing that I would say is that, listen, we, we've got to be thinking about the fact that when we had Delta roaming around, we didn't anticipate that Omicron was going to be the next thing we see, which was a, a variant that was able to get around our, our immune system. So if we, if we assume that this is what's going to happen, we're going to get herd immunity and everything's fine, we don't know that. Um, and certainly we have to think about, uh, on top of that idea, also what happens when we let this thing move through the population. So already, even with advanced healthcare and high amount of vaccine and, and infection-induced immunity in the population, healthcare systems still are being stretched. Now, take that and transfer that into areas like low- and middle-income countries across the world where they don't have a functional healthcare system along the lines of what we have. This is the problem with this idea is that from a moral and ethical standpoint, there's a major issue, but also there's a public health toll that's also going to result in an economic toll and going to further set us back in, in the pandemic. So I guess the answer is no, let's not let it rip. Let's, let's, let's <laughs> and not I shouldn't let it rip. <laughs> yes, and I still, I'm okay with not wanting to get it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kinderchuk, for uh, joining us on the program again. We'll see what next week brings. I mean, you just never know from week to week. Yeah, no, I, absolutely, especially after a day of, uh, of, of some, you know, high-stress football games like today. So we'll see what happens next Abs- week. Absolutely. But you know what? When you uh, lose a game and they're still, they're still praising you, it's pretty good for yeah. Tom Brady anyway. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Education continues to be a hot topic, and it's not just because the kids going back to school, the kids doing online currently, but what's gone on in the last two years of this pandemic and how it has related to students and especially post-secondary students and their careers. Joining me on the line from Ottawa is education expert Jennifer Flanagan. She's also the CEO of Actua Canada, and I've invited her on to talk to us about what this means for our future workforce, our kids, the kids who are graduating from university or college or those who decided not to go. Good evening, Jennifer. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the program Good. again. I really appreciate it. I think this is a very, my pleasure. very important subject and uh, a lot of people are wondering and worrying yes. Um, yes, there's so much worry, so much worry. And I relate to that because I'm a parent as well, which is important, <laughs> important context. So it, lots, lots of worry. There is. And, you know, and, and people think they're just worried about COVID. And that's certainly one thing or their health or they're worried about their parents or or their kids. But there there seems to be, um, you know, a, a, you know, there's so much controversy around education and what should I do? Mm-hmm. Should I pay the big tuition only to go maybe back? east or to the west and you know sit in a dorm room and or should i even forego this altogether um what are some of the issues that you're seeing around uh post-secondary education well we're um and you know across the country actua uh is very fortunate to engage with you know 750 to normally 750 to a thousand undergraduate students are employed by our our members across the country that number has been lower, of course, because we haven't been able to deliver our, our programs. Um, and that's just one example of, you know, the kind of experience that undergraduate students are, are missing out on. So they would have, you know, we would have employed a thousand uh, of those students. They would have had an incredible uh, 
experience where they're developing a bunch of, you know, really critical future workforce skills where they're networking and meeting a ton of different people at a community level and within the institution, you know, gain um, not, not just, you know, employment that pays, but also really meaningful um, employment. So that's, you know, that's sort of a theme is just what, what has, what have been, what have they missed over the last two years? And, you know, you spoke about the two kind of groups of students, those that just said, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm going to wait, I'm going to take a gap year, I'm going to, you know, see how things sort of pan out here. Um, and, and, you know, we do have some concerns about them, of course, because we do eventually want them or enough of them to come back into post-secondary education because we need, you know, to fill jobs that require that level of education. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're um, also the students that did go and, you know, what did they miss out on? So really it's a, a lot of the practical experiences that they are, um, you know, struggling to, to somehow replace. So those things that we all, those of us who went to university had the opportunity to be out and, you know, you're meeting people and you're having different experiences. You're in labs or you're in, you know, study group settings where you're collaborating and figuring things out together in a group. Um, you know, those, those experiences matter, matter a lot. And, and the, the loss of those is being felt. They, they sure do. You know, I uh, do virtual consults um, for patients and, you know, and I had one um, who was looking forward to going back to university and, and said, you know, the gym in the building where uh, they rent a place is open, he said. And so that's good for my mental health. And, you know, when he was prepped to go back and then, you know, on the call uh to this week, he said, um, oh, you know, the gym in the building didn't have to close, but it did close. And so even that changes changes things, you know, what it looks like. But I also imagine kids who take a gap year might, might you know, continue to ski <laughs> as opposed to yeah. um, <laughs> they're in a yeah, world-class exactly. resort, um, they, yes. as opposed to going yeah. back. It's hard to make those changes. Not everybody is, is that flexible. Just quickly, um, if you could, for the listeners, tell us what Actua Canada actually is. Is. Yeah, so Actua is a national charitable organization. So we work in the space of education and learning and skill development, all in science, technology, engineering, and math, so in STEM. And we work at the very earliest stages of confidence development. So, you know, right from, from kindergarten through elementary, middle school, high school. Um, and, you know, as, as we progress in, in ages, we sort of Start with that confidence is always a big part of science and math, um, but uh, they they progress on to be focused more on on skills and experiences that are going to help them um, into the future. The goal is is not only to uh, make sure we have enough scientists and, and computer scientists and engineers, but it's also uh, based on the the knowledge that science and technology literacy is just a foundational skill for everyone. It's important to our, our, our general well-being as individuals and as a country. We depend on a scientifically literate population. We're all experiencing that right now with, you know, how people are dealing with misinformation and disinformation out there about the pandemic. Absolutely. Um, that, all stems, that all stems from science literacy. And so the work that ACTUA does um, across the country, and, and we work with 43 universities and colleges who are who employ those students that I mentioned, and they're out in 500 communities, normally face-to-face, delivering these programs. Um, 
And the last thing I'll say that's important about ACTUA is that we really focus on those youth who are facing barriers. And that could be, you know, geographic, that could be socioeconomic, that could be, you know, systemic racism. So we do a lot of work with with girls and young women, with Indigenous youth, with Black youth. Um, Youth who just have been not, not, haven't been, even pre-pandemic, hadn't been afforded the opportunities um, to, to build you know, the the kind of confidence and skills that they need. So that has been exacerbated, all of that, through the pandemic. The gaps um, are are only going to get bigger in terms of skills required in the future and missing skills. Um, so we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, yes, you, you know, certainly we, do. And, you know, <laughs> if anything, this pandemic has taught us is that the value of scientists and, you know, they're really in a way behind the scenes worker, you know, workers who, you know, and I imagine there's millions of them globally. Only a few come forward in our in the media, but it takes so much time and and intelligence and dedication and work and skill and training and education um, and those mm. skills gaps are, you know, are a big issue and, and may impact, you know, the, the, our future and, and our progress, especially in, in science, healthcare, and, and medicine. Now, I've heard the term micro-credentialing. Um, are you familiar yeah. with that? And what is that? And how can that help to fill skills gap? Mm. So um, it's, it's a great, because it, it was such an, um, a, it, was, it was a developing area of education and skills training pre-pandemic. And I think has become even more more relevant. Um, and and really, it's it's about one of the things that we keep talking about is is the need to reimagine and re-engineer skill development opportunities in in Canada. So we really need you know innovative and responsive and flexible skill training solutions that are going to meet the current needs of our economy, which is really shifting. Um, and and to, to to close that skills gap. So basically a micro-credential is a certification um, based on assessing competencies and it's um, really meant to uh, complement the formal formal qualifications. We um, sort of actually describe it to make it easy as like a mini qualification or a nano degree. Like it's just a smaller um, assessment of a, of a skill. And it has so many different benefits. And this is why I think right now, especially where we need that flexibility, where we need just in time kind of skill development, they're fast, they're, they're more focused. So they take less time to complete, obviously, than a full degree. They're more accessible. Um, often you can do micro, variety of organizations offer micro credentials. You can do them online. You know, they're not as expensive. Um, you can do them live. You can do them on demand. Um, they're buildable, so you can get, you know, we, we have um, micro-credentialing right now with teachers about Indigenous land-based learning, and they can get, you know, a credit that builds on another credit that builds on another credit. It's just, it's a great way to um, get skills quickly, but also to have that be validated by um, by someone who can say, yep, you, you had that experience, you did that. And um, it's what's interesting about this is I think a lot of employers are really going to start looking, um, you know, more at these types of you know micro credentialing uh, qualifications because they're they're around specific skills that they're looking for, and that might help um, with a lot of so, student debt as well. What are some of the job prospects for kids graduating from post secondary? 
right now? So that's, yeah, um, you know, it's not so much job process. Well, they're, they're, the job prospects are still, um, you know, very plentiful within the fields of um, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, and, you know, what is important to note is like, what, what are the skills that are going to be required for those jobs, you know, for the jobs that are available? And that's why we strongly encourage and and again, this is pre-pandemic, but now, you know, those digital, the digital skills, the technology-based skills are so critically important for every single career or job opening that is out there. And uh, so, you know, when, when university students are coming out, it's re- coming out into the workforce, it's so important that they have those digital skills, but that they have been able to use them in a way to, you know, to, to solve problems or to create new new content, create new solutions. Um, we know that hiring managers are going to be looking less at, at academic background and more at those practical skills and knowledge. So, you know, we, we, we have long been telling students to look for opportunities to, you know, within their formal studies. Yes, that's, that's one thing, but you know, what other things exist where they could um, be learning skills that bolster their tech um capacity and build those human skills, which are so critically important um, to all, you know, to, to, to all, to all sectors. So I would say, you know, looking at areas in this country that are going to be so plentiful in terms of, you know, looking for jobs, so cybersecurity, you know, health-based science is not going anywhere, as we all know, Mm -hmm. Um, areas like artificial intelligence and automation, anything using, um, you know, those advanced uh, technology areas, digital agriculture. There, there's so many areas that are so interesting and that combine a whole bunch of different fields together. So um, I, I, I have no issue continuing to really encourage people to go into these fields because there, there's going to be a lot of need for, for good talent and, and a lot of well-paying, stable jobs in the future. Absolutely. Uh, hopefully uh, healthcare and uh, and I know supply chain and logistics as well. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining me this evening to uh, educate us about the impact that the pandemic has had on post-secondary education. Really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. you got questions, she's got answers. The Nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here, as you know. Thanks so much for tuning in. We've got lots coming up to talk about in this hour. We're going to be talking about some of the hard conversations that um, people are afraid to have. And also, why is it important that uh, men brush their teeth (laughs) twice a day? This is going to be highly motivating, let me tell you. But right now, I have some serious questions for Dr. John Beisler. He is a, an experienced cardiologist and head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital in North Vancouver, British Columbia, and the North Shore Heart Center. His expertise is in hypertension, atrial fibrillation, coronary artery, artery disease, pacemakers, and sports cardiology. And he joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Beisler. Good evening, Maureen. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, I am so happy to have you here. <laughs> I think it's time we had the cardiologist back to talk about uh, COVID-19 and the fact that we're seeing some evidence that it may be a vascular 
disease, and it has a may have a negative impact on blood vessels. What what are your thoughts on that? What are you seeing, Doctor Weisler? Yeah, th- that's definitely true, uh, Maureen. And I think we're all pretty used to thinking of COVID nineteen as a you know respiratory virus that spreads through you know coughs and droplets and aerosols and infects the respiratory tract first. But in a lot of patients, they do get changes or injury to their blood vessels. So the, the, our blood vessels, of course, they're, they're more than just like pipes or tubes, but they're, they're alive. They're complex. They're lined by cells that have millions of functions, fascinating biochemistry. These cells are called the endothelium. And so the COVID virus can and often does injure the endothelium. So it can cause injury to the cells. It can cause clots and and blood clots to form throughout the body. Um, It can damage the heart and other organs. And a lot of the way that it's thought to do that is by damaging the blood vessels first, which then, you know, you get tiny clots that injure the heart or the other organs that are affected. A big uh, research paper came out last week with all the, summarizing all the neurologic or brain complications of COVID-19. And there's a number of them, different changes in thought process and strokes and other, other problems that happen. Wow, that that's amazing. I didn't realize that. I knew that, um, you know, I know that there has been uh, injury to blood vessels, but I didn't realize um, the impact. I mean, I obviously, there's going to be an impact to any organ that has blood vessels, so the kidney, the penis, um, and the brain. But um, I did not realize that there were, was uh, documented increased evidence of stroke after having uh, COVID-19. You know, it it's um it must be difficult for you being a physician because i'm sure you see patients who believe in covid believe in the vaccination and those who don't is that more challenging for you to um talk with patients who may have different ideas about vaccine injury versus uh vascular injury it it definitely is and you know the the overwhelming quality of scientific data support that, you know, the vaccines are extremely safe, that side effects are extremely rare and usually mild if they happen. And COVID, despite, you know, many of us thinking that, well, if we get COVID, we'll likely be fine. You know, COVID can and often does have serious consequences. We're still learning the long-term consequences of COVID. And we're, we're all used to, as, as physicians and, and nurses and, you know, other healthcare professionals, we're all used to people with different views on health, you know, people that, you know, want to take this supplement, don't want to take the med- medications that we recommend. Um, but it's, it's, it's different in, in some ways with a pandemic where, you know, we don't just get sick ourselves, but we can, you know, also make others sick. And that's the big difference when people say, well, you know, if we are hard on the unvaccinated, why are we hard on, you know, why aren't we hard on people that, you know, smoke or that are overweight and stuff like that? And, you know, in, in some ways we do want uh, them to you know, sometimes change that too and, and improve their health behaviors. But right now we're in the midst of a pandemic where our actions and our choices don't only affect ourselves. And that's sort of different from other health conditions. So it's, it's certainly a challenge getting through to them, trying to find common ground. And we also always want to respect, you know, the patient's autonomy or their own choice. We do do that a lot in medicine and in, in, in most cases, I think. But um, it's difficult with this situation. And some people are so entrenched with, you know, really what is misinformation or unnecessary fear that's sometimes hard to get at. Absolutely. And they've really, um, you know, this whole rights issue, you know, um, Mm -hmm. is is another (laughs) 
giant issue for people. But I often think, you know, you know, a lot of people will write to me or uh, send me messages on Facebook or wherever, social media, and they'll be talking about vaccine injury and how many people have been injured by the vaccine. But when you think about it, we have not had or I've never heard of a vaccine injury ward in any hospitals, yet we've had COVID wards um, practically in every single hospital, I would imagine, around the globe. I would, you know, I think it's safe to say that. Absolutely. You know, and um, a lot of the, you know, misinformation about vaccine harm or people misrepresenting reports to like in the States, they have the the VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. And in Canada, Mm -hmm. we have a similar process through Health Canada. And physicians and other practitioners are encouraged to report anything that might be connected so that the... um, you know, the regulatory bodies can do surveillance and look for side effects, but that doesn't mean it's a proven linkage. Often it's just a possibility or something that you want the government to investigate. So reports to these systems don't prove anything. They're just sort of, they're um, like hypothesis generating or meant to generate interest, discussion, consideration, but they don't necessarily mean or prove anything. And in in the better data where they, you know, with, with the clinical trials and now the large, you know, they've got millions of patients that have been you know, available in real-world studies of vaccine, um, truly, you know, confirmed side effects are extremely small. Things like myocarditis from the vaccine, for example, which I hear a lot about as a cardiologist, is vanishingly small and almost always mild when it occurs. And, and you need to get that, that quality of data is very important to get good quality data, well-done studies to really prove that there's a connection that, you know, you might be wondering about. Because it's, you know, with statistics, it's very hard to, to tell from, from, you know, just, um, you know, news reports and that sort of thing. It certainly is. And um, now we hear a lot about long COVID as well. Do you see patients in your clinical practice who you feel um, have potentially have long COVID symptoms? Are you seeing long COVID symptoms in uh, the cardiovascular system? Yes, I do. Um, there's there's sort of two groups, I think, uh, and I'm you know very specialized as a cardiologist, so cardiac concerns are all I see. So you know uh, I can't really I don't really focus on helping people with neurologic disorders or you know lung impairment, except maybe to steer them towards a appropriate specialist. But there's kind of two groups of patients that I'll see, uh, Maureen. One are people that have had you know heart muscle injury and myocarditis from the uh, the virus from the COVID infection. Uh, so they had injury to their heart muscles and sometimes arrhythmia. And so we try to help them recover from that. There's some things we can do with medications to help them. The, the other group of patients that I see are patients that I can't really find anything wrong with their heart. They have um, they had COVID and this a lot of long COVID patients, they have like a constellation of symptoms, you know, uh, repeated fatigue, shortness of breath, sort of difficulty drawing breath in. A lot of them also have a lot of chest pain, which is how I get involved. And so my role is really to make sure that there's, you know, nothing else wrong with their heart, like a plaque blockage or something that needs to be unblocked, and then to try to assess them and make sure that their hearts are all right so they can sort of continue on their journey of recovery. These patients face, you know, seem to face a long and difficult recovery where they can be impaired and tired and fatigued for months and and longer. And so it's important to sort of, you know, because we're still learning to understand this condition, it's important to try and, you know, see them and help them and see if you can do anything to help them out. And, um, you know, people who, you must see unvaccinated people who've had, um, who've gotten COVID and have, are having long COVID symptoms or, or as you say, fatigue and shortness of breath and chest pain. Do they have regret or do they talk about that they wish they had been vaccinated or is the subject not even brought up? 
Uh, it's some, sometimes, sometimes, um, you know, some, some patients do volunteer that information. Usually, usually I'll ask if they were vaccinated at the time of their infection, you know, and, and what their thoughts were with that. And I, I try to be open-minded and, you know, respectful and, and not judgmental because, you know, I understand everybody has to make their own decision in, in the end. Um, and, and so I'll usually ask, and then if they weren't, that they'll usually then volunteer their opinions on the vaccination. So I would say, of, of the ones that, you know, have long COVID that, you know, weren't vaccinated when they had it, uh, the majority, I think, wish they had gotten the vaccine sooner. There is still a, you know, a small but a firm minority that's quite set in their ways that, you know, is adamant they never want the vaccine. And I, I don't, you know, I, have, I move on to their, to their heart concerns, but I, um, you know, I get the sense that probably nothing is going to change their mind. Right, right. There, there's certainly a, I mean, you saw even with Omicron soaring and, and surging in cities throughout North America, and yet the vaccination rate barely moved the needle. <laughs> you know, so even that wasn't going to convince people. Um, so I'm, I often say I do not want to get COVID. And um, is that... <laughs> Because I don't want to get long COVID, to be honest with you, because we really don't know the long-term impacts. I feel better about the long-term impacts of the vaccine uh, than I do about the long-term potential impacts of long COVID. A hundred percent agree with you. You know, um, the, um, you know, and, and, and uh, I think, uh, you know, this idea that's out there that Omicron is mild and don't worry about it. It's just like a cold. Um, we don't want to take that too far. I mean, um, you know, most people do recover, but it's somewhere between one and two out of 10 people with COVID that will get some long COVID symptoms. And, you know, I hope all those people are going to get better with, with time. But, you know, the fact is we still don't understand that condition that well. And, you know, I, I think most people that had a more severe COVID and had to go to hospital or had to get intubated or something, a lot of them thought that it would be a mild disease too, you know. So you really, you can't tell. We, we are learning a lot more about COVID, of course. The literature is exploding, but we don't know everything yet about it. And we there's still there's still that element of chance. And the, the vaccines, you know, perform very well. Their risk profile is very good. And they're a much, much better option. And I know like things like masking and stuff can be annoying, but it's a fairly simple thing to do when you think about it to make sure you don't get this virus. And, you know, I know the pandemic's gone on a long time, but it won't be forever. Dr. John Weisler, medical doctor and cardiologist and head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital and the North Shore Heart Center is my guest. And he has been talking about the impact of COVID-19. He's a very experienced uh, medical doctor and cardiologist and has been talking about the impact that COVID-19 has had on some of his patients, specifically COVID-19's impact on the vascular system and the endothelium. Um, Dr. Weisler, thank you so much for staying on the line. We're, we're going to shift over to hypertension, but I did have one text message from somebody <laughs> that said, would it not make more sense to preach abstinence, so to speak? Well, don't they preach that? Anyway, push that normal is gone. Stay home. Push to normal is pushing normal further away. Lockdowns are the water for COVID fire. Vaccines help, but but what? Anyway, it didn't, didn't finish. <laughs> Before we, I have one more text here. Well, I have like 10 more, but I can't read all of them. Um, how do we know? Oh, Dr. Dr. Weisler, here's a question for you. Except it says, hi, Maureen. <laughs> but I'll let you take it. How do, we not, how do we not know that the vaccination shots are not causing the heart damage, strokes, blood clots? I know people with three vaccination shots getting COVID and people that are just vaccinated are dying in their sleep. 
better than a nursing home in the long run and having to have a diaper change. Anyway, let's just address the, um, <laughs> the how do we know that the vaccination shots are not causing the heart damage and strokes and blood clots, Dr. Weisler? Well, it's, um, it's established by, uh, you know, careful reviews of the cases when people pass away. So it's kind of unplausible for a vaccine to cause injury, um, you know, beyond. Usually you see most vaccine side effects within about two weeks. So to see something like month after a vaccination um, is generally like not seen very often with vaccines. The um, COVID, there's a, there's a number of different basic science, um, you know, studies that have looked at COVID and how it can affect the heart muscle. And there's a multitude of mechanisms and different things that you can demonstrate in somebody infected with COVID, different markers of heart muscle strain, heart muscle inflammation in many of them. And the extent of injury that's been demonstrated from reviews of COVID, you know, patients, um, it shows much more heart muscle damage. When you look at the vaccine trials, the amount of heart muscle injury was very small. So I think to try and answer the, the text, the best answer would be that, you know, the vaccines have been studied very carefully. There's generally no signal of serious heart muscle injury. The incidence of myocarditis or inflammation from the vaccine is, you know, one in 30 to 50,000 patients, and it's usually mild when it happens. So how would, you know, this occur in a well-documented, you know, very well-controlled clinical trial? How would we miss large numbers of people dying, you know, from the vaccination, it doesn't really make sense. Uh, and then we, we have other evidence that the COVID infection can cause much more serious heart muscle injury that's been well demonstrated. So, you know, th these stories that you hear about people dying in their sleep after a vaccination, they just don't fit with the evidence that we do have and the experience that we do have, both with the vaccine and with the virus. And, and people with three vaccination shots getting COVID. Yes, that happens because uh, vaccines are not 100%. People get a much reduced risk of hospitalization, a, a lower burden of disease, and um, and virtually no death. Dr. Weiser, we're at the end of the ha half hour. I'm, it's been great having you, but we never addressed high blood pressure. So I'd love you to come back next week, if you can, <laughs> and talk about that's, that. Uh, that's very kind. Sure, Maureen, we'll, we'll find a time. Yeah, that's great. We'll I'll find a time that, next week know. or in the, the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. We've got lots to talk about. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Sounds good. Thank you. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Now, this subject is uh, something you can really sink your teeth into. Teeth have always been uh, something in my life because I have rather large teeth, a rather, rather large mouth in more ways than one. Um, but your teeth can tell you a lot about your <clears throat> penis. And if you ignore your chompers in the bathroom, it might actually cost you in the bedroom. You know, teeth are really important. And especially when you're seeking a partner, I hear a lot of people say that they didn't like a person's teeth or somebody didn't take care of their teeth. I'm always amazed at people who have, I know they have tons of money and, and they have terrible teeth. Um, but, but some people can afford orthodontics and other people cannot, but that's one thing. But the other thing is taking care of your teeth, brushing, flossing, 
uh, and going to the dentist, having routine checkups as well. And it sounds like, according to a recent study in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, men with gum disease are three times more likely to have erectile dysfunction than men who do not. So it's very important that men and women uh, rid their mouths of bacteria by brushing at least twice a day, according to this study. The study reported actually that rats uh, with gum disease had lower levels of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, which is the enzyme necessary for getting an erection. And the inflammation of gums results from plaque being built up in your gums. And so gum disease is often caused by poor dental hygiene. So skipping brushing teeth before you go to bed or, um, you know, after a a meal where that, that you might feel you should be brushing your teeth, or maybe other people feel you should be brushing your teeth is, um, not necessarily a great idea because, Inflammation of the gums can damage blood vessels in the penis. And where the blood flow to the penis is impeded, you have, you may have difficulties maintaining that erection because as I have taught you over the years, erections are about blood flow. But when the blood flow is impeded, you're actually not going to be able to, or you may not be able to get an erection. And so you don't want to skimp on those good brushing habits uh, because not only will it leave you with a rotten mouth, might actually deflate your penis as well. And, you know, that can impact relationships too. So imagine, you know, you've made it past the first step, your teeth have been accepted, but (laughs) things aren't looking up down there. And that can be problematic in a relationship, especially as men age. And that's something else that I have heard from more than a few women who are doing online dating. They'll say so many men that they have gone out with have erectile dysfunction or have erection function issues. And that is not a great way to start out a relationship. So uh, in this particular study from the Journal of Sexual Medicine, men with erectile dysfunction were 79% more likely to have been diagnosed with chronic periodontal disease than guys without ED. Now that says something. Chronic periodontal disease, or CPD as we call it, is an infection that occurs when your gums pull away from your teeth and then you get deep pockets that are created. And in those deep pockets, bacteria is harbored. And that allows those bugs to spread into the bone surrounding your teeth. So uh, this is not the only reason that... um, your stiffy may be sinking. There's other reasons as well, but we'll cover those on upcoming shows. <laughs> um, but chronic inflammation, and inflammation is a problem for blood vessels. Let's just say it. There's lots of issues. Dietary choices can contribute to increasing inflammation, but that inflammation that can be caused by poor dental hygiene and gum disease may damage your endothelial cells. Now we talked about endothelial cells in the endothelium last week. The, the endothelium forms the lining on all of your blood vessels, including those in your penis. And the endothelial damage results in poor blood flow. And that leaves you problems, leaves you limping in the sack. And that can lead to relationship issues as well. It can also contribute to low sexual desire for yourself and 
or for your partner as well. The blood vessels to the penis are about a quarter of the size of the ones that lead to the coronary arteries. And oftentimes, erectile dysfunction is the canary in the coal mine. It can serve as an early warning for cardiovascular disease, heart problems. So you want to make sure to speak to your doctor in case your member isn't participating in life the way you would like it to, because it may not just be your member that has the malfunction. And in fact, it may be your heart. And oftentimes I have spoken to many people, if I've given presentations, largely before the pandemic, but many women would come up to me and, and they would say, you know, my partner, my husband was diagnosed with valve disease or had a heart attack. And, and prior to that, he did have erectile dysfunction. So this is a clear warning sign. So cleaning that dirty mouth is a good thing to help with your erectile dysfunction. You know, we have to get over the fact that erectile dysfunction is embarrassing we have to view it as a medical condition, a medical problem, but can cause a lot of problems in your life. So the researchers in this particular study suggested that tooth extraction may help to reduce the erectile dysfunction by eliminating the inflammation. But fortunately, in, in North America, that is a last resort here. But if the disease is caught early in, in time, and, you know, um, early uh, detection is always helpful no matter what the medical condition is. The treatment can be as simple as a few deep cleanings from your dentist. But if it's discovered later on, you might require gum grafts and those gum grafts will reduce the pockets and restore some of your bone loss. Now they can be expensive if you don't have uh, dental insurance, very expensive, let me tell you. But um, you know, you can prevent it. So and that's by brushing your teeth twice a day, every single day. And flossing, flossing is really important as well. And, and maybe you can get a water pick. Those are awesome. They make your teeth feel amazing. So once you, if you do get gum disease and once you have the disease under control, you know, maybe you might, might want to increase your dental cleanings instead of every six months, which is what we typically go to the dentist. You might want to go every three months, but you want to take those precautionary measures because most people who have gum disease don't feel the pain until it's in the advanced stages. So you want to make sure you go to your dentist if you experience red swollen gums, bleeding gums when brushing, bad breath, of course, loose teeth or receding gums. And, and you know, gums change over time. But periodontal disease is almost entirely preventable. So brushing your teeth for two minutes twice a day with a fluoride toothpaste and you want to look for one that has uh, an American uh, American Dental Association seal of acceptance for the best results. Uh, you want to floss daily and, and floss if something gets stuck in your teeth. I'm one of those people that has a set of tight teeth. <laughs> so I have to floss. I love to floss. Um, but you want to go to the dentist. Don't miss those. And, you know, I know that during the pandemic, a lot of people missed out on going to the dentist because they were fearful. They were afraid. But, you know, dentists actually understand infection control and infection prevention. You want to make sure that you are healthy when you go to the dentist. And of course, if your dentist is sneezing and coughing all over the place, you know, but I doubt that they would be doing that. But it is safe to go to the dentist and it's very, very important for your teeth. Um, 
you know, because, you know, when you have your own set of teeth, that's the best actually. And so you want to protect those. I, I was fortunate growing up, my fam, my parents were very much into teeth, failing that protect your teeth, take care of your teeth. I had good dental care as a child. And so um, that's important also for your own children as well. Teach them that uh, early in life. And, and, you know, it's hard to get kids to do things, especially something that's not fun and exciting, like, like brushing your teeth, but you can make it fun for them. But they will certainly thank you later on. Not everybody is fortunate to have a great set of choppers. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes, um, you know, they, they are more prone to cavities or they're more prone to, um, you know, uh, infection or abscesses. And so, but anything that you can do to help your um, dental hygiene is is something that's very good. And, and, you know, thinking, I mean, sex is a great motivator for guys. And so if, if you are having an issue with erectile dysfunction, you may want to up your game in the bathroom so that you're you can up your game in the bedroom. But just a simple thing like brushing your teeth twice a day with a fluoride toothpaste and flossing at least once a day. I mean, it's simple. I don't believe there have been any side effects or uh, adverse events as a result of brushing your teeth uh, twice a day. And it can certainly be very helpful in terms of preventing um, infections and and also getting cavities. Um, but you also want to go to your dentist for regular examinations and deep cleanings, especially to prevent gum disease or to catch gum disease. And a lot of people have gum disease. I uh, want to catch gum disease in the early stages because when gum disease, as I said, is caught too late, you may require surgery or uh, gum grafts, which are horrible. Uh, not that I know, but I have heard, and I can just imagine that they would be horrible. And you may need surgery to restore bone loss. And um, and then again, you might lose your teeth. And so, you know what? Bottom line is you don't want to lose your teeth. You want to take care of your teeth, be very careful with them. And, um, you know, it's it's something that we don't think about on a daily basis. But dental hygiene is critically important. And now we have some evidence to support that it may be related to your problems in the bedroom. Anyway, so brush your teeth twice a day, guys. And, and it also might, I just want to add that it might actually improve your chances of meeting that special someone, uh, especially if you're on the market at the moment. Um, so brush your teeth twice a day, floss once a day. Anyway, this is a hard conversation, I know. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.